Hello and welcome to Adipec Energy Dialogues. I'm Ethna Trainer, your presenter for this session. We're going to present to you a series of conversations in the run-up to Adipec November 2020, really bringing you up to date with experts and analysts from around the world. We're absolutely delighted that they'll take the time to share their views and expertise in terms of what's moving the markets and indeed what's impacting the global energy sector. Absolutely delighted now to have with me Jason Schenker, the president of Prestige Economics. Welcome so much to the show, Jason. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Edna. Great to be here. Now, bring us back to, you know, the last few months, to March and April, the activity that's been going on in the market, the volatility, and in fact, that big drop that we saw at the close of the May contract. Just tell us, give us your take on it, basically. Sure. You know, the, the big top line thing is that 2020 was going to be a year in which global business investment improved, global manufacturing that had been under a lot of pressure in 2019 was gonna turn around and global economic growth overall was going to accelerate. This was gonna be really positive for commodities, gonna be really strong for oil prices. And then the COVID-19 pandemic hit and all kinds of commodity prices fell, industrial metals, oil prices, they all got hit pretty hard. Now, crude oil particularly, in March and April came under a lot of pressure, especially when for WTI crude, there was that contract roll immediately before the close of the May contract. And th that was really something quite spectacular to see the price of oil prices minus $42 a barrel, more than that. Uh, that was really, uh, really a shock to a lot of folks. And I think it's been a wake-up call to people who saw WTI as the way to hedge crude oil. The truth is WTI is a physically settled crude oil contract, and you have to take physical delivery in Cushing, Oklahoma, and there's limited inventory there. So that's really something that we didn't see in Brent, for example, which can be financially settled and not physically settled. So that's a really big deal. And uh, you know, we have seen prices come up a little bit in, in, you know, the end of the quarter, but we'll have to see where it goes from here moving forward. It'll depend a lot on what happens with global demand. But when we look also, Jason, I mean, June and July, the close of those contracts are coming shortly too. I mean, is it likely that we're going to have this big, you know, price volatility again and you know where is that storage right now i mean there's still bits of storage around but that is becoming a problem isn't it yeah it is so there's a couple pieces one for brent we didn't really see it for the make at, at the same time we had that make contract closing up for wti brent prices weren't doing that um we would not expect to see it for brent in the month of may uh for for the, the, the next contract for crude for Brent either, even though we might see during the month of May for the June contract of WTI, we could very well see problems again. The storage is filling up. There have been certain companies that have petitioned to use their pipeline capacity as de facto storage. You've got a lot of oil sitting in offshore tankers. So there's lots and lots of crude around there's not much storage at Cushing. And again, a lot of folks who invest in crude on the speculation side may not realize these are physically settled contracts. And I think that as the contract was coming to a close, 
for May, the realization that, uh-oh, uh, I've bought a futures contract and it might expire and I'm going to have to go get that crude oil is something that became a very harsh realization for some folks. And, and that's really what pushed the price into such negative territory because people wanted to get out of the risk of having to take physical delivery of crude oil where they may not have been able to even get storage for it. Now, talk to me about what's going on really in the market. I mean, you know, we're seeing job layoffs, we're seeing, you know, consolidation, we're seeing perhaps bankruptcies. I mean, this is not a nice time in the industry. You know, the oil industry has been through tough times before, but this is very different and it's going to be prolonged, I guess, too. That's the, the real difference on this one as well. What can the industry do, you know, any way different? What do they have to do to actually survive this? Well, I think the first thing is to remember that crude oil with all commodities is bought and not sold. And so the, the demand side is really, really important and can swing those prices much more quickly than the supply side. That being said, if we have high inventories, that can prevent the price from recovering more quickly. And I think we are gonna see very high inventories rolling forward. Now, for individual companies in the space, they're gonna to have to be really diligent about cutting their OPEX. They're going to have to really try to engage in as much uh, uh, asset recovery where you repurpose assets or you're divesting or are you doing asset disposition where you might have assets you're not using? You're going to see companies do that. They're going to be doing spend analysis. They're going to be doing all kinds of cutting, renegotiating. It's just going to be a lot. And it's not just oil and gas that's going through this. You see massive layoffs in, in many, many different countries. I know in the United States that right now we've had over 30 million initial jobless claims in the last six weeks. Uh, that puts the unemployment rate you know, somewhere around 21%. It, it's a lot. And what's going to happen is those kind of labor market dynamics can prevent recovery from happening as quickly as it otherwise would. Because with the unemployment rate in most countries, uh, it's really elevator up, escalator down. In other words, the unemployment rate can very quickly skyrocket right? But it, it's, it's kind of a grind to get it to go lower. So if we see across the globe, the unemployment rates remaining high, that people don't all go back to work as quickly as everyone expects or hopes, I should probably say, you know, we're, we're going to see that oil demand could remain weak for a little while. The industrial side of it for, uh, for diesel demand, for plastics, pet chem feedstocks, that demand's likely to come back a little bit more quickly than say for gasoline or jet fuel. Those sources of demand might be a little bit slower to recover because honestly, it's gonna take a while for consumers to feel confident in their own financial situation. And it's gonna take a while for consumers to wanna be traveling anyway. Absolutely, and this of course is a big concern. Now we're just looking at those first quarter results that are coming in from the international oil companies. And as expected, you know, they're, they're not great uh, to, say, to put it mildly, I guess. But what is this gonna mean for the survival of the international oil companies? You know, are we looking at possible consolidation in the market? 
What do you think is going to happen? Well, I think that we are going to see consolidation. I think, especially for smaller players, you know, larger IOCs, you know, the bigger independents, the vertically integrated majors, they have a credit quality that is probably being supported either by the Fed or by other central banks in terms of corporate debt risk. So I, I, I think you're going to see some support for those companies uh, on the debt side. And the bigger the company, the higher the probability of survival and the higher the probability that they might come out stronger on the back end. Very small independent oil companies, wildcatters uh, in the United States, for example, smaller shale producers. You know, I would expect to see these uh, get vacuumed up and the, the, the real cost savings there is for the company that pulls them together. They have essentially the same production, but you're spreading the OPEX over a much bigger entity. Uh, for example, every small oil and gas company has a CEO and a CFO and other executives, right? But if you merge a lot of different companies together, you don't have as many CEOs and executives. And that's a big, that's a big way that, that cost savings can be achieved. In addition to other efficiencies of scale. Uh, now, that can be quite painful for executives in the space. It can be very painful for operators. Uh, it can be very painful for folks working, running pipe uh, and, and roughnecking. But at the end of the day, companies are gonna find ways to save money and there's a few different ways to do it, right? You can cut your operating expenses. You can get rid of equipment you don't use. You really need to keep the cash flowing. And that's going to be the top priority right now for all companies, especially for oil and gas, given how, how low oil prices have fallen. But for all companies right now facing global recession, the name of the game is cash is king and cash flow is life. And if you're a company and you don't have cash flow, uh, then, then you don't have a business. But at the end of the day, you don't go broke by making a profit. And as long as you buy low and sell high and there's a spread in between, that's what companies are going to be thriving. But also when we look at all this oil from the smaller players in America, and there are so many of these smaller players, you know, put them all together. That oil's not just going to be capped under the ground. I mean, if they're bought up basically that oil is back and when the price goes up the shale players are very quick to resume so are we still going to have that supply issue well there's a few pieces to that one is that some wells some companies are looking at capping their wells there's concern about does that do permanent reservoir damage and th there's all kinds of things that are being done now to to try to address those those questions and risks and to try to stop the bleeding as it were uh, I think you're also going to see the number of new wells completed will go down quite sharply in coming months. But to your point, you are going to see still that companies, even if they get aggregated, they will still be producing largely. And if they are, you know, it, it's really a question of which company can spread the OPEX thin enough to still continue to operate which companies can eke out a profit and which companies can get leverage and debt to be covered. And that's why the biggest entities, the biggest companies probably have some of the best shots. 
Now, talk to me about some of the reports that are coming out, you know, from the International Monetary Fund. We look at everybody looking at a gloomy economy, a global economy for the year ahead and, and, and maybe beyond that. But also when we look at the dynamics in terms of where was China positioned in this and indeed Asia, the big drivers of economic growth for the past few years and indeed the big driver possibly of oil demand growth as well. You know, what's the situation there and what can we expect in you know, the next few months, the next year ahead? Well, for China, the biggest thing is gonna be uh, for, for long-term wealth creation, that's that's going to be really critical for long-term oil demand and oil prices, right? If we look forward 20 years, real per capita GDP in China will be almost triple what it is today in, in dollar purchasing power parity terms. So that, that means you're going to have a much wealthier population. The demand for commodities is going to be very strong uh, in that kind of economy. What happens in the next year is probably going to be uh, you know, some level of recovery once we get past the, the third quarter and into the fourth quarter, and next year probably looks a little bit better. You're going to have a lot of accommodative monetary policy. You're going to have industrials cyclically, typically coming out of a recession and a recovery, perform very well. So you're likely to see some improvements there in terms of Chinese industrial demand uh, for metals as well as for crude oil. But I, I think you're still going to see oil prices remain under pressure because the consumer demand, not the industrial side, but the global consumption side could still remain a little bit soft because people might still be doing social distancing. There's talk of a second wave of COVID-19 in the fall of 2020. What could that do to oil demand, right? So if we see rolling sort of brownouts of activity, Right? Normally we think of power plants that have these brownouts and that's when they can't maintain power. If we see that, but with global infrastructure as a result of COVID-19 flare-ups, that's something that's going to weigh on oil demand in, in the coming quarters. But I would expect next year to be quite a bit better for the global economy. This year's going to be tough. The IMF's numbers from April 2020 reflect an expectation of minus 3% GDP for the year 2020, that 2020 could be worse than 2008 during the financial crisis and the Great Recession. So th there are some really negative expectations for what this year will hold. And really probably some of the peak negative risk is what, what happened between March, uh, April, and May. That, that three-month window is probably kind of looking at the biggest set of downside risks, sort of maximum uh, shelter in place, maximum demand destruction for crude. And we, we're likely to see improvements going forward, but some industries like travel, tourism, entertainment, leisure, those might still be under pressure for a number of months. Indeed, that certainly looks like it is the way, but where does this all look? What, what's the outlook really for you know international trade relations? I mean, is there a danger that globalization is is dying it's, it's slowing down i mean as some people are suggesting you know maybe regionalization is the way to go is that a possible solution or are we just in a temporary uh, bind at the minute and hopefully things will pick up very very soon when all of this is over well i think that a lot of what's going on in the global supply chain there's been sort of a competition between the united states and china on several different levels 
And this is something that the United States has been pushing back against. The Trump administration has implemented a number of different tariffs, the Section 232 tariffs, which put restrictions on steel and aluminum, as well as the Section 301 tariffs, which were designed to address concerns about forced technology transfers and other issues. I think as a result of COVID-19 that those tensions between the United States and China, which had uh, really eased at the end of 2019, could flare up again. I think there are concerns in the United States about the security of supply chain for medical devices, for PPE, for pharmaceuticals. So you could see further tariffs, you could see a congressional inquiry, you can see all kinds of stuff like that uh, push forward. So this means that the supply chain tensions that have been out there since 2018 could ramp up going forward. And, and that's really the United States uh, and China kind of at loggerheads. I think we could see that accelerate uh, in the coming quarters and uh, once we get past this. As far as regional economic dynamics go, I think you know, we already see that in different regions there's been integration, right? In Europe, this is the case. We've seen it uh, in, in North America with the, the newest version of NAFTA, the USMCA. And I think you're going to see it in other regions as well. Uh, you know, Africa, the African Union uh, is, is gaining some momentum. I think in the GCC, you'll see more regional activity as well. But in terms of globalization, writ large, where every country is doing business with every other country equally, I think that's going to change. And if we look at five, 10, 20 years, I think we might see the risk of a globally bifurcated supply chain where certain kinds of goods, if you're selling them into the United States or you're selling them into China, they might need to have a, a bifurcated, almost a dual uh, replicated supply chain uh, for those two different customers. And again, when we look at President Trump has been very, very clear you know, about his, uh, his views on China and this one, really laying the blame at their door for, for the cover-up, for the spread of the pandemic. You know, as you mentioned, things were getting better. But I mean, will this break apart the good relations that have been there? And I mean, is there a hope for recovery there? And, and does America need it? Does the world need that recovery between America and China? It seems like it does. The relationship between the United States and China right now is one of frenemies. And this is actually a term that even though we think this is very, you know, zeitgeisty now, frenemies, right? It was actually a term coined in the 50s to discuss the relationship between the United States and the Soviet Union at the beginning of the Cold War. And I think that the relationship between the United States, although on many levels economic symbiotic, there is also this sort of frenemy tension that I, I don't think is going away. I think there are some fundamental challenges that we will see become more critical going forward. And I think it would be probably overly optimistic and a shame that we aren't going to see everyone sitting around a campfire making s'mores and singing kumbaya, but I, I don't think that's the most likely outcome here. I think the most likely outcome is that that competition between the US and China for global economic hegemony, for uh, global economic influence and for political system um, discourse, I think that competition is going to be uh, quite fierce in uh, decades ahead.
Now, when we look at what's going on in the, you know, the global market, and also we can really look to, you know, look at this. People are calling this the worst economic situation since the Great Depression. Now, that's, that's a pretty big label up there. What are the governments doing in terms of fiscal stimulus? We see what the Fed is doing, and I know you talk and you write a lot about the Fed. So let's have a look first at what the Fed is doing in terms of that being the right direction, and then we'll look at the wider global um, financial stimulus around the world to help. Yeah, so different countries are taking different approaches. They've got different ways to try to keep people employed or they're trying to get funding into different companies. In the United States, trillions of dollars have been allocated by government budget. Uh, it's pretty close to 2.8 trillion or so now that's been allocated. Plus the Fed has increased its balance sheet by trillions of dollars and will increase it by trillions more. This is the game plan. Uh, there's three ways you get economic growth. This, when, when you're in a recession and you really get it out, right? One is fiscal policy stimulus. Governments spend money, so there's money they don't have to encourage the economy to grow. The second way is monetary policy. Governments, uh, the central banks, they try to get interest rates lowered or they directly lower them or they engage in other activities like going into markets and buying assets to intentionally reduce interest rates in those markets, the way the Fed has gone into the treasury market in the US or the mortgage market or corporate bonds to try to prevent companies from going out of business. Because the only way companies go out of business isn't by issuing too much stock, it's by having debt you can't pay for. So that's, those are two of the, the third element is time. Right, because fiscal policy, even when a government says we're going to spend all this money, it sometimes takes a while for that money to actually get spent. And monetary policy has six month, 12 month lags to it. So it, 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 the time is a critical third element. But most countries around the world are doing some mix of these dynamics to try and stimulate their economies, whether it's by spending money and, and trying to increase government spending, because that's part of GDP, right? GDP, which is gross domestic product, is the way you measure growth within a country during a given year. And there's four parts, consumption, investment, net exports, and government spending. It's math. So if consumption goes down because everyone's at home and they're not out there spending and COVID-19 has people afraid to spend, if the government spends more money, again, it's a calculation. You're adding up the four things. If one of them goes down, but one of them gets bigger, you might be able to counteract some of the loss. So I think that that's what we're gonna see is fiscal policy stimulus, monetary policy stimulus. We have seen it, we will see it. And now we really just need to wait for the recovery to come as, as central banks and governments continue to engage in this stimulus. There is unfortunately a waiting element. And indeed, when we look at basically how, how sustainable actually is this, and then what does America, what does the world look like post-COVID, really? What do you think? Yeah, there's a few different things I would expect. I think you're going to see a lot more people telecommuting. I think you're going to see a lot more people doing online degrees. Uh, you're going to see potential preferences for real estate that's more suburban or rural over urban high-density real estate, uh, especially for people who might have been confined to a small condo with their entire family, everyone working there or going to school all in the same little place. You might see these folks are, you know, crawling for the walls, dying to get out somewhere bigger. 
Um, you know, we could see commercial real estate on a global basis, office space take a hit, retail space take a hit, e-commerce is going to accelerate, supply chain becomes a, a, a recognized critical element of economic growth and of economic stability and for many countries, national security. Uh, and we see other dynamics going forward, the importance of the agricultural supply chain. Uh, we see the importance of uh, many industries like healthcare that, that get a lot of attention here. And, and you're gonna see this cast a decades long shadow over people's careers, how people invest, and even how people consume. Well, particularly, you know, in terms of what's happening globally, we'll be keeping an eye on that. But when it comes to what's going on in the global oil market, I mean, looking at demand for oil, when things change and when things pick up, obviously demand for oil should pick up. But let's have a look. I mean, we're seeing a bit of a pickup in the price without a doubt, a bit of recovery there. And let's look to maybe the third quarter. Are things looking a lot hopeful then for the oil market? Well, I mean, oil prices, I would expect to be higher in the third quarter than they are in the second quarter. Uh, but I wouldn't expect them to be too high because a couple of dynamics are going on. One, you're going to have an inventory overhang. Two, you're going to have producers who, as soon as they see oil prices get towards 40 bucks, they're going to want to hedge all kinds of stuff. Uh, and that can push prices back down pretty quickly. You know, and the third thing is you might have some permanent demand destruction and you might have other things going on. But by permanent demand destruction, I remember you and I went to an IEF meeting in Cancun, I think back in 2010. And I remember I gave an interview at the time and um, uh, with, with some of your former CNBC colleagues. And I was asked the question, what was I worried about for alternative energy or electric vehicles? What was my biggest concern for long-term oil demand growth? Again, this is 10 years ago. And I had said that my biggest concern was telecommuting and that eventually you'd have a lot more people remote working and that poses a much bigger risk to long-term oil demand than does electric vehicles. And I've written about that in numerous books and articles since. I still believe that. And I think looking forward, if a lot more people are working remotely and aren't commuting, that could really impact oil demand over the next five, 10 years uh, until we see much stronger Asian oil demand growth and emerging market oil demand growth, which I do expect we'll see. But if a lot fewer people are driving and commuting, it's a lot fewer people consuming oil. Uh, but despite all that fact, I would still see oil prices uh, uh, quite a bit higher in the third quarter than where they are now. But you know that might be you know, for WTI, you know, we, we might still be in the in, in the low, maybe mid thirties, uh, you know, a little bit better for Brent. But again, once we start getting to 40 bucks, you might see a lot of hedging. Indeed, just stay with that at the moment because I really think people are, are a bit nervous. They look at the uncertainty out there and think, where will the oil price go? You know, what is the future for Brent and WTI? And we're seeing obviously a bigger spread now than we've seen earlier in the year. Um, you know, there will be some sense of recovery back. I certainly hope we will all be getting on planes and I hope I'll be interviewing you back at the OPEC meeting by the end of the year, I certainly hope. But um, I do take on board what you're saying. And of course, since people have got very comfortable, you know, maybe not traveling to meetings as much and, you know, getting together over Zooms and all of this. But I would like to think that uh, we'll still get back to one-on-one. -on -one. Talk to us though about where that future is, you know, for WTI, and for Brent particularly? 
Well, you know, I, I think we are going to see higher prices going forward. It's just going to be, you know, it's going to be a bit of a, a, a slug going forward, I think. And as far as travel goes, you know, I think that that it's, it's a lot easier to shut down economies than it is to turn them back on. Free market economies operate in a way where if you provide a service, a good or a service other people want, uh, then they buy it and you have a business. But if you've mandated that the demand is gone, you know, how quickly things come back can be a bit clunky. And I think even things like, you know, air travel is going to be clunky. I think how quickly people want to go back to their quote unquote normal lives before social distancing. You know, I, I think we're going to see um, some hesitation there. I think you're going to see some slowness with the recovery. So, um, you know, look, I, I do expect we'll see Brent prices be higher next year. I think the Brent WTI spread will narrow uh, once we get into Q3, Q4 this year, just because the inventory situation at Cushing might open up by Q3, Q4. But, you know, we're still going to see prices that are well below probably where they were at the very beginning of this year. And indeed, I guess it's just about riding out the storm as uh, the oil and gas industry has done many, many more. Um, before I let you go, let's have a quick word about what's happening with OPEC and about, you know, the future of the OPEC plus and really looking at that. And as I say, we're hopefully going to get back together by the end of the year to see what's going on here. It's a tough time, of course, for all oil producers. But, you know, they have they've had a great few years, I suppose. I mean, and I guess in many ways, it's just all producers have to sit this one out and hope for better times to come, I guess. There's not, much, not a whole lot they can be doing right now, is there? Yeah, I, and that's the truth, right? The last economic recovery period we've, we've just ended, this last expansion, was something like 10 years and eight months long. And we might have a recession that's eight months long now, maybe a little longer, maybe a little less. But, you know, if we have another 10 years of growth after that, you know, the, the, the big thing is really just to hold on during the down period. Because that's what you're waiting for. You're waiting for the upside and it, it will come. And fortunately, expansions are usually much longer than recessions. The trick is if, if, you know, if you don't have the cash to hold on, you don't benefit from the upside. So again, thinking about cash is king, thinking about cash flow as the, the lifeblood of your company's present and the future. You know, I, I think that's how we, we probably need to be thinking about things. And, you know, for the economy, keeping in mind that recessions are generally pretty short, even if they're quite severe, as this one is, uh, that that recovery is just around the corner. And indeed, that's what everybody will be looking and hoping. And, you know, the big target and the big focus will be on how will life recover post-COVID. I mean, this is what's on everybody's mind. And hopefully, as you say, too, it will bring that sense of demand back. And again, I suppose it brings back a bit of stability to the market and a bit of reassurance. And this is what everybody needs. We're going to have to leave it there. Jason Schenker, president of Prestige Economics, a million thanks for being with us. Thank you, Edna. My pleasure to be here. It's really been great to have you here. And, um, you know, to, we'll talk again, I'm sure. And as part of this Adipec Energy Dialogues, you know, we're going to be talking to a lot more people in the run-up to Adipec 2020 November here in Abu Dhabi. So I hope you'll stay with us and join us for many more discussions. But once again, Jason, thank you so much. Thank you, Edna. Pleasure.